0: I was hoping to have Vinesh from India with us today, but unfortunately, uh, the British Embassy, in their wisdom, decided not to give him a visa. Now, of ten people who went to apply for a visa, only one got one, and that was an old woman. They're clamping down on people being able to come over here. So, instead, you've got me. But I th- did think I would share. I did think I would share some things out of. India and out of my experience of India this morning, just so people get a connection perhaps with with what's going on and what we're doing out there, because what I'm doing is not just what I'm doing, it's what we as a church are doing, because we're all part of it, and we're also helping to finance it. We sang that song earlier, I've decided to follow Jesus, and of course that's taken from an old song, but I don't know if you know where that song comes from. It's an Indian song. It's an Indian tune as well, the original. The tune is called Assam. And this is the story. And I'll try and get through this without crying. The lyrics are based on the last words of a man in Assam in northeast India. Who along with his family was converted to Christianity in the middle of the 19th century through the efforts of a Welsh minister, a Welsh missionary. He was called upon to renounce his faith by the village chief and the convert declared I've decided to follow Jesus in response to threats to his family he continued though no one joins me still I will follow as his sons were killed before him He said again, I've decided to follow Jesus. As his wife was killed before him, he said, no turning back, no turning back. And as as he was executed, his last words were, the cross before me, the world behind me. Sorry. And this display of faith has reported to have led to the conversion of the chief and others in the village. And the moment, and these words were captured by Sadhu Dar Singh, which many, some of you may know about, an uh, 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 Indian Christian of the 19th century. And he put it to the tune of Assam. And the man responded completely and absolutely To the call of God and his life. And he paid the highest price for that response. It puts that into context, doesn't it? Changing tack a moment. A young man wrote a note to his girlfriend. I would run through fire for you. I would ford the deepest river, I would climb the highest mountain, love from your devoted servant. P.S. I'll be over on Tuesday night if it's not raining. (laughs) For me, the first story expresses what I encounter in India. The second story is what I encounter in England. If I haven't got a better offer, I'll serve the kingdom of God. In India, I encounter, I will lay down my life and my all for the kingdom of God. See, worship in words only is not enough. Standing here on a Sunday morning and say, You are Lord, I surrender everything to you. And then going out and not letting it affect the way we live, the, way, what the values we hold, our behaviour... He's not just not good enough. That's not Christianity. That's not faith. I'll come back to that. While I'm in India, I still see that same heart for Jesus in the gospel. While we were there, we would travel to a place called Humnabad in Karnataka. The accommodation at the lodge where we stayed was not exactly first class. In fact, it's a place that I would rather my wife and my children never went to and never slept in the the room there where we slept. But that's the the price that we pay for travelling into the villages. From there, we went out to a small village down a long, rough road. In the middle of this village, in the middle of nowhere, was a huge Hindu temple. But just a little further down the road, in the same village, a cross had been erected. And from this point on, the residents of the village were Christians. This had come about because a man in Hyderabad, eight years ago, had felt called to reach the villages of India. And he moved his family, leaving the relative safety of the city. And he went to this remote location. He obtained a house. We went into his house for dinner. His house had no toilet. We had to go next door if we wanted the toilet. It was rough. It was difficult. But he paid the price because he wanted to see that village changed and brought to salvation. And from eight years of work, he built a congregation. The church has no building. They meet in the open air although they do plan to build one. How is he supported? By the offerings of the villagers who have come to faith. If people don't come to faith, the preacher has no money. That puts an incentive on our preaching, doesn't it? And this is the kind of commitment to Jesus that can be replicated time and time again. Let me show you some pictures from that village. There's some of the children, all there in the worship service. Worship service starts about 9 o'clock and goes on to half 11 at night, and then they go back for dinner. So bedtimes are not quite the same as they are for children in in our country. they are the ladies of the village. It's still a a habit in in the villages especially that the women will sit on one side, the men will sit on the other side. Very much like it would have been in New Testament times. is mothers bringing their children to be blessed, to be encouraged and especially that they might do well in their studies because they know that studies, education is the way out of poverty and so they work hard and they work with commitment and they obtain their desires Many come with sicknesses and diseases and all want prayer. Especially many women come because they are barren and ask that they might have the miracle of a child. And that's a common problem. And so after preaching, I normally spend, particularly when I'm on my own, an hour or two praying for everybody in the village. And it's tiring. It's exhausting. But it's what God has called us to. And then there's the young men, passionate for God, wanting to go out and make something of their lives. And then this man here is the one I was talking about. He's sitting at the drums. He's the one who took his family eight years ago and settled into this village and has built this church. That's commitment. He didn't even speak the same language when he got there. So he's had to learn a local language. Because in India there are 366 different languages. And only 125 of them have been reached with the gospel. There's still plenty to do. Whilst in India I spend most of my time with this man, Vinith. He's not a poor Indian in relative terms. He's actually from a high caste family. His family name is Reddy. And Reddy is the highest caste in India. But that doesn't matter. His father was a senior police officer. And that means that they're okay. They're okay in terms of their, their um, income. Father's got a good pension and so on. But he, his sister, and their mother and father live in the home together. And they're all totally committed to the work. Totally committed. Their every waking hour is spent working to do what God has called them to do. From a young age, Benith had a strong calling on his life. After studying engineering, he went to Bible college at King's Temple Church in Hyderabad, which is where I first met him. When teaching in the Bible school, I always used to take time to prophesy over every one of the students and to release the word of God for their lives. And when I prophesied over beneath, I prophesied the exact same words that God had spoken to into his heart five minutes before, and that made an immediate connection between us and in subsequent visits he would seek me out for counsel and we would chat and he would talk about what was going on and ask me questions and after graduating Bible college he became the Bible college administrator but about three years ago he felt a call to set up his own ministry he received no support from the church in doing this but nevertheless went in faith two years ago when I knew that my time for going to King's Temple Church had finished, I contacted him and some of the other young men who had come out of Bible College to see if they would like me to visit them, to encourage them. And it was Vanith who took hold of this opportunity. And he it is he with whom I continue to work closely. Though I do see some of the other chaps as well that I've spoken over in the past. And essentially, Vanith is committed 24-7. To making the gospel known and to discipling those who God brings to Him, his week consists of Sunday morning church in his home. This is his home. They'd just moved into a new house. They were looking for new premises, so in, they couldn't find one. So instead, they bought a house with a bigger lounge so that they could fit the church in the lounge. Sunday evenings, he visits the village of Uppal, which is outside Hyderabad, and is. Uh, Fairly basic, isn't it, Sue and Pat? Then during the week, every day, he's visiting people in their homes, praying for them, encouraging them, blessing them. On Friday evenings, there's another service in his home for encouragement. On Saturdays, there's often teaching. Once a month, they do distribution of food to the poor. And every month, he goes on a mission trip to other towns and villages where the gospel has not been preached. And this is his life. Sometimes to other states of India. And when I'm there, I just seek to support all of this work, seek to give encouragement where I can, to this church that meets in his home, and to assist him in the preaching of the gospel, and for praying and blessing as many as we can. And that continues to be our strategy going forward as regards India. And I hope to be able to take others with me in the future at different times to focus on different and specific areas of ministry. And I'm also still hopeful of bringing Veni to the UK so that you can meet him in person. A few more pictures. That's the Saturday after I arrived there. They're making 225, I think, Portions of rice and meat to give out on the streets. And that's what we did from 10 o'clock onwards that evening. We went out driving around, finding those sleeping rough on the streets, giving out food. Wonderful experience. This is beneath me, and this other guy in the middle here. His name is Vanya. He was another one who came out of the Bible college and who I connected with. He's just completed his master's degree in theology. Very clever guy. Very passionate. Decided he wants to work for justice, and particularly for, in trafficking. So I'm making a connection between him and Ben Cooley. Yesterday he got married. I have an invitation at home to the wedding That he gave me, that although he knew I couldn't make it, he wanted me to to be part of it. Once this guy shared with me that he believes his calling is to be a martyr for Christ. That's why he believes God's spoken into his heart. So returning to where we started, before I do that, has anyone got any, I'll just give opportunity if anyone's got any questions about what's going on and what's happening over there. Who then? Only the, the, church, the church funds my travel. He just felt in prayer, through prayer and through seeking God, that God actually spoke that that would, that would be his destiny. But in the meantime, he'll work hard for the kingdom. Our largest fellowship, presently 30, about 30, but with others connected as well who he also has a relationship with and continues to go out and pray for and encourage and so on. So returning to where I started. What I encounter in India, amongst those I mix with, is an unflinching, uncompromised commitment to the kingdom of God and a deep passion for Jesus. And in comparison, I find believers in the UK, with one or two exceptions, half-hearted in their commitment to the kingdom, and easily weighed down and distracted by the cares of this world. I don't want to come across as condemnatory, but I just want to tell it as I see it. That's what I see. And part of the reason for this is that the lives the Indians live are much less cluttered. Their homes are simpler. No emphasis on decorating and gardening and DIY projects. Their houses are just placed to facilitate living. Their lifestyle is simpler. Homes are not full of the latest gadgets and toys. Yeah, all houses may have a TV, but few will have DVD players and surround sound and all the other things that we think of as essentials. These things are just not a priority. Dress is more modest. I love being in India because the women dress with modesty. I'm not being exposed to stuff I don't want to be exposed to all day long, every day. And that goes across the, the advertising and everything else. On Indian television, they're not even allowed to present a kiss. Very different. But it means we're not being... Um, Bombarded by all this stuff that is a distraction and is a temptation and takes us off in the wrong directions. Fashion is not so important. And coupled with all of this, they live in a culture which is spiritual. We live in a culture which is materialistic, where spiritual things are not Above the surface. But they live in a spiritual culture. They're surrounded by images of idols. Of spiritual activities. Of many people doing puja. Which if you've seen the red spot on people's heads. That's the Hindu ceremonial that they will have taken part in. Worshipping an idol or a god before leaving home. It's surrounded by Muslims and mosques. And in the midst of this spiritual culture. It breeds a people who are passionate. For the gospel and from the spiritual reality that comes from knowing Jesus and through living in his Holy Spirit, we are surrounded by materialism. We don't think, have to think about spiritual things most of the time, most of the day, and yet we're denying 50% of what we are because we are both spiritual and material beings. And so that, all of those things, just because of the way they live and the culture they live in breeds a passion and a desire for the kingdom. In the West, our lives are taken up with material things. We're surrounded by a sexualized culture. We're obsessed with fashions and clothes and sport. We're content with our material comfort and do not pursue spiritual depth. In the words of John the Revelator, we are lukewarm. And I believe this is because many of us have come into the kingdom on a faulty understanding of the truth. The preaching of the gospel has been inadequate, committed to getting responses rather than making disciples. This was the message I heard preached many times when I was young. This is the message that most of us hear. We're all sinners, but Jesus died to save sinners. Repent and invite him into your heart. You'll have a place in heaven. Anything wrong in that? Exactly. It's all about a ticket to heaven. Christ never called us to have a ticket to heaven. He called us to be disciples. He called us to live now in the good of our future. He called us to live in relationship with God. And if the gospel doesn't change and transform our attitudes, our beliefs, our behaviors, and our lifestyle, then the gospel has not had its effect in our life. God didn't call us to have a ticket in the hand. He called us to be people who walk in the kingdom of God. It's a false understanding of salvation. It says nothing to to me about what it actually means to follow Jesus. You see, becoming a Christian is not praying a prayer and then you're in. We're not looking for decisions. Because praying a prayer doesn't get you in. Becoming a Christian is submitting my life and all that I am to the Lord of the universe. It's handing over the reins of my life to another. It's giving up my pursuits, my interests, and surrendering my destiny to Jesus. It's an act of faith, but it's also an act of surrender. It's taking up the cross. And this can only lead to death. Have you ever thought about that? If you take up a cross, it means you're on your way to be crucified. That's why Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. It's not I that live, it's Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think many who have prayed the prayer and then done nothing more will be surprised by the outcome on Judgment Day. You see, how do we know that someone is really saved? Not because they've prayed a prayer. By their fruits, you shall know them. The fruits of our lives must demonstrate the reality of our commitment to Christ. It's people who are no longer living for themselves, but are living for him. And this is the message of the book of James, where it clearly says, Faith without works is dead. Let's read that passage. James chapter 2. Verse 14 to 26. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, well, you have faith and I have works, Well, show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And before anyone calls Paul on me, Paul and James are in absolute harmony. We come to faith by faith. But the proof of our faith is by works. And if the works don't follow, then the faith isn't real. That's what James is saying. If you came to faith 30 years ago and it's made no change in your life, you're not saved. Faith without works is dead. That's what James says. It's got to be real. It's got to make a difference. It's got to result in transformation. Faith will open the door for you to God. But unless it results in a change in our values, beliefs, lifestyles and behaviours, it's meaningless. You see, the days of attending church once a week and thinking that's enough to safeguard our ticket are now over. The time in which we could be a private Christian... Believe in the right things but not let it affect our behaviour and our way of living or our relationship with people in the world. That time's at an end. We are called to be distinct, different. In fact, Peter, in the King James Version, calls us a peculiar people. And it's true. There is none as peculiar as some of the Christians I've met. But we're moving towards a society when we will become more and more different in terms of our beliefs, our values and our behaviour. It's time to stop trying to be like the world and to be more like Jesus. It's time for some of us to put our heads above the parapet and be noticed for being a Christian. And I don't mean like the preacher who wears a bright yellow t-shirt and tells everyone who passes that they're sinners and are going to hell. But by the distinction in the way we live. That proves the faith in our heart and our commitment to Jesus Christ. And that we are surrendered and submitted to the King of Kings. So how do we get there? It begins by falling in love with Jesus again. And if you haven't done that, I suggest you go back to the Gospels, read about him afresh And get to understand more deeply his love for you and what he's achieved on your behalf. Next, we need to make a decision of our wills to choose to submit our will to his. And this will affect everything we are and everything we do. And if it doesn't, then we're not surrendered. Finally, we need to set our faces to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And that means to prioritize his kingdom in our lives above everything else. And if we as a people are prepared to do all these things, we could see God working in us and through us in amazing ways to touch the lives of those around us. Be like the Indian Christian from the 19th century and say, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me. The world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. Amen.